0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am on the line with Darren Nakuda, the CEO of Mighty AI. Mighty AI is a company that you've heard from on the podcast before, but in fact, they were formerly called Spare Five, and we interviewed their one of their lead data scientists, Angie Hugeback, back on Twimble Talk Number Six just about a year ago. Darren, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. It's great to have you on. Why don't we start by having you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your role at Mighty AI?
1: Sure. So my name is Darren Akuta. I'm the CEO and one of the founders of Mighty AI. So we've been working at Mighty AI, as you said, formerly known as Spare5 for about three years and really trying to harness human you know, insights and human power into building better training data sets for artificial intelligence.
0: And tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Sure. So my background has been in software engineering for About twenty years, mainly in internet technology, so everything from e-commerce and communications platforms, through you know marketplaces and yeah,
0: okay. And is Mighty AI the your kind of first foray into the AI space, or have you been doing that for a while?
1: So Mighty AI is really our first foray into AI, but really using human insights has been something I've been doing for a while. So at both startups as well as when I worked at Amazon. I leverage Mechanical Turk and other platforms to, to use humans to augment what we could do with our systems.
0: Okay, awesome. So, since the conversation with Angie again just under a year ago, it sounds like you guys have gotten a lot more focused, and in particular, you're spending a lot of time in the autonomous vehicle space. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to there?
1: Sure. So. When we started a few years ago, we were really focused on human-powered insights for almost anything. And what we realized was what really set us apart was our focus on quality. So, like you talked about with Angie, you know, a year ago, really building our own models for user reputation and data data quality predictions was key to to our success. And really, that was resonating with customers who were focusing on building training data or building you know models where they needed really highly accurate data. And that boiled down to natural language and computer vision and really where we saw a lot of focus was on the computer vision side, specifically in autonomous driving, which is, you know, a huge field as you've as you've seen. And we had a lot of, a lot of demand there for really specialized, really highly accurate data. So we decided to focus purely on that area.
0: And I've mentioned the conversation with Angie and, and you've mentioned human powered insights a couple of times. And I think I'm maybe taking for granted that folks will have heard that podcast, but I probably shouldn't do that. So why don't you take a second to kind of step back and really walk through what you guys do so that we can, you know, make sure everyone's on the same page on that?
1: Sure. So what we have a platform called Spare Five, which is basically a community of people around the world who we give small micro tasks to and they are able to perform those We have a quality control system in which that we can review and manage that both automatically and with other people. And what we deliver to our customers is a high quality result. So they'll, they'll come to us with a requirement. For example, a, you know, a photograph and some requirements as far as what types of things in the photo need to be labeled. In the case of autonomous driving, that might be drawing bounding boxes around pedestrians and vehicles on the road, or it could be something like segmenting every pixel of the image into a semantic class. And we'll build a workflow and we'll go through that and have humans do that. And then using a combination of the humans and our AI, deliver back a result to them that they can then use to build their own models.
0: Okay. And you were previously doing this for folks that operated in a a variety of market segments, but you've, again, focused more tightly on autonomous vehicles for some time now. Can you talk a little bit about you know, some of what makes that market unique for what you're doing?
1: Sure. You know, I think autonomous vehicles, especially on the computer vision side, is really a great example of what needs to happen in order to build highly accurate models. In a lot of the other use cases that we dealt with in the past, there was a lot of flexibility or more subjective insights as to taste, like in retail or something like that, where you're much more focused on, you know, things that are not life and death and safety related. And with mm-hmm. with the vehicles, you know, it really is about getting as much data as possible with a lot of diversity as possible, and getting it labeled in an accurate way in which we can feel comfortable that we can take this model, you know, train a system, integrate all this, the the sensors and the controls, and put a car on the road and have it drive with humans and other cars right next to it.
0: There are a number of different perspectives on kind of the right way to to do autonomous vehicles in terms of the, I guess the, the different types of sensors, there seems to be, you know, one world view that's kind of very heavily computer vision focused and looks at the camera as kind of the ultimate end all be all sensor. And there seems to be another point of view that's a little bit more, you know, integrative and includes LIDAR and other types of sensors. Do you guys have any perspective on that?
1: Yeah, so most of the work we're doing is on the image side, camera side, but mm-hmm. really my our perspective is that in order to have a car drive like a human it needs to have the senses of a human, right? So there's more than just your eyes. Mm. So and that's where other sensors come in. And we, you know, maybe humans don't have a built-in lidar system, but we do have a sense of <laughs> surrounding, right? So it's not just our eyes, but it's you mean sound, so when you think about radar or ultrasonic, other contexts, that's more 360 than just a front camera or a back camera or,
0: uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, I rely pretty heavily on my Spidey sense, which is about as close to LiDAR as I'm going to get.
1: Sure. I mean, there's things that you <laughs> pick up as you're driving, you know, like you see a person way down the road on the sidewalk and uh-huh. you're going to be thinking about, will they cross or not? And maybe that is, you know, a camera seeing that, but also the intent of which way are they moving? What are they doing? like and just what is your experience like in downtown seattle people usually stop at the crosswalk not really the case in the rest of the world
0: right right can you talk a little bit about where the service that you are providing fits into kind of the the broader pipeline that your customers are Deploying, sure. And maybe as a, a prelude to that, you can talk a little bit about the the customers that you target, and any customers that you can name, and kind of what they're working on.
1: Yeah. So we work with a variety of customers. Really, everybody you could picture in the automotive space. So that could be the OEMs, so the car manufacturers, mm-hmm. the tier one suppliers, who are the people who have traditionally provided parts, but are also now providing integrated systems. Mm-hmm. And then you know what we'll call disruptors. So. Companies like Uber that, you know, are using autonomous driving, maybe not as their core business, but as part of their broader offering. Mm-hmm. And then startups who are purely focused on, we've never been in the automotive space before. Maybe we have some individual experience, but now we're going to go straight after kind of full autonomy. And okay. so that's, you know, a wide range of of customers. Most of them are starting out with a car on the road. So equipped mm-hmm. with whatever sensors they have. And and then they're taking that data in the requirements coming from their research team, which might be object detection or it might be you know semantic segmentation. It could be a combination of, of them. And then they give us their raw data, which is video or still extract, extracted still frames in the requirements. And then we have to j- develop a workflow in order to give them back label data.
0: Okay. Uh, and so object detection, that sounds pretty obvious in terms of what that means on face value, mm-hmm. but are there... Nuances that are part of the process there that folks don't generally think of when they hear the phrase object detection.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I think more so in autonomous vehicles than in other spaces where it's not just about you know what shape is this thing so I can decide whether it's a car or a truck. But even when you see a truck, you might have you know four jeeps. One is a mail mail delivery van. One's a ice cream delivery truck. One's a um, you know passenger vehicle. And those nuances actually become really important when you think about driving patterns. A ice cream truck may have kids running out to it, you know, as it drives down the street. A mailman might be driving on the wrong side of the road, and you know, mm-hmm. stopping very often at mailboxes. And you know, who knows what a passenger vehicle might do? <laughs>
0: right, <laughs> right, right. And then you also mentioned scene segmentation. Yep, tell us right. about that.
1: Sure. So, you know, another part of of thinking about computer vision is not just, you know what are the, the objects in front of you, but really what is your context? So in the segmentation, what we're doing is labeling really every pixel that's in the field of view, whether that's a road or marking on the road or a vehicle or a pedestrian of different sorts or vegetation and buildings and curbs. So really making sure that we have enough information about the different types of things that you're looking at that you can make better decisions.
0: And so every individual pixel gets a label and and the the pixels are labeled essentially as objects or is there a, uh, like a fixed vocabulary that you're labeling the pixels with, or is it across a, you know, a broad spectrum of objects?
1: So the taxonomy of labels changes based on our customer requirements, but you can think of them in broader terms, kind of as, um, as classes. Or as, okay. as types of things. So it's not necessarily an object, but something like the sky or sure. or vegetation or, or an individual car. And usually from that, what we're doing is labeling everything we can see. And then there's additional labeling steps afterwards. So we might break down vehicles into, like I was describing earlier, very specific types of vehicles. And a lot of this also changes based on you know the location of the footage. Because terminology can change. The types of road markings can change based on you know, what part of the world you're in.
0: Mm. Can you take us a little deeper into how you do all this? And in particular, I'm really interested in hearing how that's evolved from when you were tackling the problem more broadly to doing this specifically for the autonomous vehicle market.
1: Sure. So probably the best example I can walk you through is on that semantic segmentation that we just spoke about, because it's really hard. I mean, just think mm-hmm. about the amount of time it would take to figure out how to label every pixel in an image, oh, re- yeah. regardless of tools. And so, when we first started out, you know, especially with the Spare Five app, we were a mobile mobile only app. And what we've done is we we still have that platform, but we've also developed a desktop client or a web web based desktop view. And really, that was about preference. So some people really like working on the tablet with their fingers or with the stylus. Other people really like using the large screen and. Either way, you need to be able to zoom in and really get within a couple a pixel of an edge when you're drawing doing this type of drawing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, workflow-wise, we learned a lot when we first started doing this. We said, okay, we've got a list of 75 classes of things that are in an image, and we built a couple tools to help you draw polygons. So you could go click around a shape and make a closed polygon and say this belongs to the sky or a car.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what we found was one, it was really hard to instruct humans on 75 different things at once. So even if we gave them a long instructional set and quiz them, it's a lot to keep in your mind. Two, it takes a long time. So drawing and labeling any one of these images from start to finish might take an hour of your time. And three, if you, you know, if you made mistakes, it was really hard to figure out where the mistake was, how to pick up on it, how to have somebody else come in and fix it, or how to have you, you fix it so we're not just throwing out you know an hour of effort. And so we, we iterated on that process several times as far as an overall workflow. And, you know, our first pass of that was, well, instead of doing 75 classes at once, we'll do one. So let's have people focus purely on pedestrians and or purely on vehicles. And that helped a lot because, you know, that made them really focus on the instructions as far as where to draw the lines, kind of what, what counts. Like, do you go around the tires? Do you go around the, cur- the, the bumpers? How tight do you have to be?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it still is very time-consuming, especially if you think about something like you know highway highway scene in the middle of rush hour, where there's 50 cars within the field of view and some of them really far out on the horizon.
0: Mm-hmm. And so when you when you switch to that that first iterative step, did you go from a, a model where you would have like one worker work on you know all of the various things in an image to one where the image would kind of pass through steps and be routed to like the pedestrian team and the tree team and the vehicle team, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think it's a little foreshadowing of our next step. But yeah, so what we had was from (laughs) one person, one image to one person doing one class, so 75 people, you know, roughly for a full image. Right. And, And then the next, you know, what we realized was the time between these different tasks was hard to predict, and it was still very you know pretty exhausting to do all every single car in a scene. So the next iteration was really what we call recursion in our world, but it's you know basically we present the image with all the previous activity that's been done to it. So if there's thirty cars and twenty five of them have already been boxed, we'll show you an image with twenty five boxed cars and say, "Are there more cars in the picture that haven't been labeled?" Mm, mm. And if they say yes, then we give them the drawing tool and say, draw the shape around one of the cars. So just do one at a time. And so they will outline a car, they will label it, you know, according to which kind of class it belongs to, and they'll hit next. next. And at that point, you know, we've taken something that took an hour to do or more to do the entire image to a short, you know, minute or two task to get it right, which allows hmm. us both to let, you know, have that individual unit of work be reviewed, both by our automated systems as well as by, you know, our reviewers. And then taking that and aggregating all of those, all the individual cars and all the individual, you know, different classes into that final composite image just gives us a lot more flexibility into actually how quickly things can run because things can run in parallel as well as, you know, the quality because we have a lot finer grain control as far as what we keep and what we don't keep and even how we, how we edit things.
0: Hmm. Now, a couple of questions jump out at me. <laughs> the first is, have you thought about making this into like a CAPTCHA? It seems like the if you can simplify the UI enough, it seems like the perfect task to turn into a CAPTCHA and just let people who are trying to sign into their bank or whatever do all this work <laughs> for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, one one thing is there are some really specific instructions as far as the different types of classes and labels we want. So in some cases, mm-hmm. like, you know, once something's been drawn, and we just need to have you categorize it, that would make sense. But typically, there's you know enough enough kind of context, and we need to train and, and instruct people on for them to really do a good job.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I realize that part of the value proposition that you are bringing to the table is that you, as opposed to what someone might be able to find with a mechanical Turk, you've got a pool of workers that you've that you've taught how to do these kind of classification tasks. And so the accuracy is higher and, and things like that. And so the, the suggestion is a little bit, you know, tongue in cheek, but it, you know, I've been getting a lot of these captures recently that are, you know, it'll show you a scene and it'll say, pick all the squares that have street signs in them. Yep. And it makes me wonder if it's, you know, something, someone like you folks doing, you know, basically farming out their object detection to. You know folks that are trying to sign into websites
1: yeah certainly I, I'm sure that you know recaptcha which is owned by Google that would be very obviously a use case for them to, uh-huh. to leverage
0: right right
1: and you know what we found is like like you said there is a lot of instruction we have annotators around the world so we have a commun- a really large community there in 155 countries around the world and really it's us communicating with them and really getting alignment so that when we have somebody doing these tasks, the same person is going through you know, the same workflow multiple times and they really aren't, aren't just a stranger being shown an image and saying which one has a street sign, but right. really given really specific instructions and also giving them a way to engage with us because inevitably as you have this large data set, you'll run into you know places where the instructions need to be clarified or that, where they're confused as to, well, what do I do if there's a car like partially occluding another car like how do, which way do I want to draw the boxes that kind of thing mm-hmm. that really requires us to interact with them a lot more closely
0: mm-hmm. okay so my next question is you have clearly or will have clearly accumulated a ton of you know labeled data sets here is the is a future step automate, you know, building some AI models that automate the, some of this, or, you know, for example, uh, predict which of the pixels are sky or put a bounding box around the sky and ask the humans to correct as opposed to draw a new.
1: Yeah. That's absolutely somewhere where we're going to be focusing is how to make the process more efficient. So that's both some automation up front as well as assistive tools so that we can make the community just perform better. So right now our drawing tools are very manual where you're clicking every point in the in a pix- in a polygon so that mm-hmm. you can get a really sharp edge. But there's no reason why with edge detection and other techniques we can't make that an easier process for the, for the community members. As right, well as right. as you said if we can take that process I was describing that workflow of recursion where we have you know, for 40 cars, we have 40 people going through doing each car. If we can skip the first 25 because we can do that in an automated way, mm-hmm. that, that'll that be great. And, you know, that's not to say we ever want to replace the human because there's a huge value to kind of having that human eye, that human judgment, because ultimately the AI is only going to be as smart as the people who are training it. But over time, if we can kind of up-level them into doing more, you know, less of the rote task and more of the task that really involve a human's particular judgments. That's where we want to get to.
0: Right. Absolutely. I think the, you know, the safety of the autonomous vehicles going to be, will be proportional to the amount of data that has been, you know, properly labeled and used in training. And so I think it just strikes me that, you know, there is tons more, you know, seen data to be processed. And even if you automated that easy, you know, 40 to 80%, there's still going to be plenty of work for the humans to do, to do that, the the more difficult task.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you know, this is an industry where 95% accuracy isn't going to cut it, right? There's lives on the Mm -hmm. line. It's about safety. So you're really trying to get, you know, as perfect as you can get. And that's really going to take iteration. That's going to take always having a human in the loop to make sure that, you know, there isn't a misjudgment at this point where we're talking about training and validation before we were even talking about putting this onto the road and into the wild.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think at all about the any of the research that's happening around adversarial examples? And there are some that are particularly focused on, yeah, I guess it's a little bit of a different context from where you're focused since your focus is on human annotation, but there's some research that looks at you know, things that ways that you can manipulate images so that a neural net will look at a stop sign and see a giraffe or whatever. Right. right. Does that is that on your radar at all?
1: Yeah, you know, it's definitely an area that we've considered, both from the adversarial side and the generative kind of synthetic data side. And really I think the more that we're we're tied to what's in the wild, whether it is, you know, running into stop signs that have been vandalized in a way that are intentionally trying to, you know, confuse models and and vision systems, or -hmm. whether it's about getting a greater diversity. You know, one of the biggest challenges that auto manufacturers or or people who are focusing on autonomous driving have is just how different, you know, scenarios are around the world. And also rare cases. So it's not just about our stop signs being in a different language or a different shape or the road markings being different. But even the, t- the types of vehicles we see on the road, right? Like a pickup truck in the U.S. is pretty different from a pickup truck in parts of Asia, right? And you know, there's a lot of rare cases. A few months ago, here in the Northwest, there was like a um, tractor trailer that turned over in the middle of the highway with a bunch of like slime eels in the back.
0: Right, I remember that. And
1: you know, it's like, how would you know what would you do if you were the car behind, you know, the the autonomous vehicle behind that truck as that happened? And clearly, even with hundreds of thousands of hours of footage the odds of getting something like that on tape is going to be difficult, right? So, or low. So really, I think there is a balance of how do we augment what we have with other scenarios and other things to get that bigger picture of what could possibly happen.
0: Hmm. Along those lines, you know, granted that for a lot of the companies in this space, their data is a core element of their IP and ability to differentiate. But are you aware of any movements to create like data consortia, for example, where you know OEMs would contribute their data with the you know on the agreement that they would get data back, so that you know they may have cars operating in North America and you know they can contribute their data and get access to data from you know this. Based in other geographies, and is that something that a is that something that is you know happening that you're aware of, or and b is that something that you might be able to help facilitate?
1: Absolutely. So I think right now it's a you know there's a lot of secrecy in this industry. So everybody keeps their their images, their data, even their requirements as far as what they're labeling pretty close. But there there are starting to form more partnerships, companies working together. I think both for the reasons you described as well as just, you know, everybody's working on slightly different angles. So if they can leverage each other's to build a solution and come to market sooner or be the first, Mm -hmm. I think they're going to, you know, embrace that. And where we can fit in is we, there's certainly a place in which we can leverage the data that we've already labeled and help people distribute that and manage that. So we're not duplicating as much effort, but we are really thinking about how to build, you know, really useful kind of full data set.
0: Right, right. So let's maybe dive back into the, you know, the process and, and the lessons learned and how that's expressed itself in technology that you've developed. Anything else in terms of specifics, You know, things that you've observed specific to the autonomous vehicle market?
1: Sure. You know, A lot of things I think could fit a broader market, but really by focusing here, it's allowed us to, to dive deep and not be you know distracted by what's going on in linguistics and natural language processing versus you know different parts of robotics and vision but mm-hmm. you know all of these all of these approaches that require humans require a lot of you know management of of the humans right so as far as really working to un- make sure that we can translate requirements into so something can be understood making sure that we understand when people are making mistakes what what is the what is the reason behind it? there's actually you know a lot of psychology to you know why why do we get bad data is it because people are being fraudulent is it because we didn't explain it right is it because we didn't even think about the scenario or is it because we explained it in a way that they're actually being consistent with what we told them to do but we were you know we were wrong or we misunderstood something so it's a really iterative process it's it's not something where you can just say there's a one size fits all tool drop in your data use a generic community and get get good data out. And we've definitely I think learned that more than anything over the past few years as far as how much we need to understand really specific requirements as well as how those fit with data that changes over time.
0: And how do you how does your platform express those requirements? Are they kind of hard coded in for each project that you take on or do you have element of the platform that's like a rules engine or something like that? I'm trying to wrap my head around how I might implement something like this. Sure.
1: So, you know, it's a combination of many things. So as I said, it's been an iterative process over the past few years as far as us developing it. Mm-hmm. On the instructional side, you know, we spent a lot of time on the instructional design as far as just making sure that once we internally have understood all the requirements and translated them into something that our community can understand, we're both giving them enough information in small enough pieces that they can understand how to use the tool, how to follow instructions for very specific tasks for a particular customer. So, you know, even the the definitions of how to box or how to, you know, draw a shape around a vehicle might change from project to project. And mm-hmm. so making sure that within the context of what they're doing, we're constantly reminding them of the exact rules and then, you know, and, and testing them. So we do have ways to, you know, inject known, known task and make sure that they are meeting the right accuracy level as well as getting feedback constantly. So we can tell them, you know, you're doing a great job at your drawing, but your labels are consistently or, or sometimes off in some way. Like you, you keep categorizing a, you know, a box van as a pickup and really they're two different types of things. So, mm-hmm. you know, we try to have as much feedback as we can, as well as the upfront instructions and the up, upfront instructions, it's really, it's written it's showing photographs and showing them like examples of good and bad. And then it's even sometimes going in and producing videos that really talk about a nuanced detail that is easier to express with words and in motion than it is with just a, um, you know, a paragraph and an image. Mm-hmm. And part of that too is, you know, we have a international community. So making sure that we're conveying these in, in the language they understand, you know, There's no reason why some of these tasks can be done better by one one language or one community than another, but it's really up to us to make sure that we're we're opening it to the right people. If we have a community that speaks, you know, is natively uh, Spanish speaking, and we give them very nuanced technical instructions in English, it's going to be harder to understand than if we give it to them in Spanish, for example. So that's the type of thing that we have to think about whenever we're doing our targeting as far as who's going to have access to this task, as well as making sure that you know, between us and our customers that there's alignment.
0: For a given task, and to be more specific, for a given scene and an object within a scene, how much redundancy is there in the process? Meaning, you know, for a given frame of a, a video, how many times are you asking someone to label a given object before you have that confidence level that it's done correctly? Is there is there a ton of redundancy in the process, or have you managed to there's, kind of filter that out?
1: There's not a ton of redundancy. When early on in the process, we we may have multiple people doing tasks in order to get a better understanding for the types of differences we'll see as people as if people do the task. But ultimately, that's part of what makes our system work really well is that we get more efficient over time. and We have less people doing it over time.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah. So unlike a traditional, you know, crowdsourcing model where your only quality control mechanism is looking for consensus or asking, you know, right, ten people right. and saying six of them agreed, so that must be the right answer, we've tried to be a little bit more intentional and intelligent about how we how we make these decisions using our reputation engines and some of our other internal models.
0: Okay. Now this is maybe something that I should have asked earlier, but do you have any? Can you share any data points that can help us contextualize the scope of the challenge within the autonomous vehicle space or, you know, the volume of data in that space or that you're focused that you're working with in particular?
1: Sure. So, you know, right now there's a few cars on the road. I think it's the easiest way to think about it. You know, all these, each company has a handful of cars at, at best collecting data and, but even any one of those cars might be collecting you know terabyte of video a day and most of that doesn't need to be human labeled but there is you know significant volume especially when you think about the diversity problems we were talking about earlier as far as that's one car on one road or one set of roads in one area of the world you know in in the valley or in, in Germany or in Michigan and so really as these fleets develop that's just going to scale exponentially right we're going to have both the test fleets which will be hopefully located around the world in collecting different types of data so not just images but lidar and and other sensors and then when we get into production where we're going to start looking really for validation and feedback loops especially when you know a a system gets triggered so if we're talking about an event-based system and we have emergency braking triggered you're going to want to have a human validate was that the right you know right thing to do or not and so i think over time we end up with more and more use cases that are gonna require human insight, even beyond just the raw data that's being captured. And part of the 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 art will be figuring out what to what to annotate or what things need better labeling, what things don't, because obviously we can't take petabytes of data a day and process that in a meaningful way. That's gonna really improve things.
0: Right. Do you often get tasks that are incremental in nature, meaning you've got as opposed to to processing all of the scenes or objects within uh or all of the objects within a scene the particular use case calls for only you know only the road dividers or signs or things like that it sounds like that that's 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 a typical thing for you to do is that
1: true yeah definitely i mean it's actually might be telling about what parts of the, the problem any one customer is focusing on at on a given time, right? So lane markings are obviously, you know, a very discreet task as far mm-hmm. as, you know, looking at exits and dashed lines, solid lines, road road boundaries, and then pedestrians would be another really good example as far as trying to understand what, you know, in an urban scene, where the pedestrians are located and how they're moving over time. So are they, you know, likelihood of somebody to cross the, the roadway, or cross in front of the vehicle, or just stand around. You know, if it's a bus stop, we kind of have to understand that it's a bus stop where people just stand. They're not going to cross the street. They're not going to move any, any way. They'll mm-hmm. they'll disappear magically. You know, in in a couple of frames after the bus passes by. And you know, there's there's things like that that I think really are individual areas of focus. So beyond the general kind of computer vision, like building a better eye for the camera, is is building you know context and building. Um, semantic understanding that I think are involved, involve more of these discrete
0: tasks. Mm -hmm. So do you do any labeling? Do you do any, for lack of a better term, I'm thinking of this as like first derivative labeling, like as opposed to saying, you know, that's a pedestrian labeling the pedestrian as walking in direction, you know, X or at a, at a speed that you can calculate based on the, you know, the timestamps on different images and things like that.
1: Yeah. So we definitely do tracking across video. So, okay, and that that's actually, there's two ways to do that, right? You can either derive it from two still frames or you can play a video, which could sometimes be helpful as far as understanding what else is going on in the frame and just getting all that data at once. So having one person view, Five seconds can can, might give you more information as far as like if the rate of movement changes, like person's walking Mm -hmm. and then the you know the cross signal turns to a blinking hand, they start walking faster or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's you know it's kind of helpful to see that happen, or you know, a car is turning into their lane and so they stop in the middle of the road. Like it's a little harder to see that when you're talking about an individual frame one at a time, even if you're trying to piece that data back together. And there are definitely. Nuances where it's not just a box around a person, but like I said, it's what kind of person, you know, are they? Do they have a stroller? You know, are they? Are they walking? Are they? Are they distracted in some way? And then their orientation. So what direction are they moving? All of that metadata kind of feeds into it, where you end up with an annotation that's not just an image with a box and coordinates, but it's an image with a box with coordinates that has a, a lot of metadata that might be related to. This point in time versus the same image in a later point in time that has
0: right right a lot
1: of shared metadata, but also certain things change.
0: And it sounds like you're also able to uniquely identify and track not just a person in a box, but you know, person X in a box, you know, in yep. frame one across you know all of the frames in a, a segment in which they're. Visible,
1: yeah, and that, I mean that's hugely important, right? To have that instance level kind of tracking, so you can say our car is changing lanes, or is somebody crossing the street, or is it just that there's different people throughout the scene, right? So it's really important right. to know that that kind of tracking.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense for who is kind of leading the field in terms of data collection? You you mentioned that you know most of the folks that are doing this have you know you know one or two cars out there, but you know, certainly Google's got more cars. At least they've got, you know, they've got a lot of cars that they've instrumented for maps that are capturing some of the same types of data. And, you know, Tesla's got a lot of cars out there with cameras mounted. And you know, who's your, what's your sense for who's, you know, got the most data, visual data on, on vehicles, real life, you know, in the wild vehicles?
1: Well, you know, I don't know that I would name a particular company, but really think about companies that have vehicles in the wild, which might mm-hmm. be you know, manufactured in production vehicles or could be fleets. So certainly there are companies that are trying to, say, distribute dash cams across a, you know consumer market so that they can capture video and and use it for building you know autonomous systems while also providing value to the the end customer mm. and there's also things like taxis or or ubers where there's a, a inherent value of that data to the driver so there's a reason for them to put this device in their car but there's also the value of the data collection so i think ultimately there's going to be a couple different strategies it's not necessarily going to be you have to produce cars and get them out there Right. Because you right. have to you know you have to produce a way to collect this data that's meaningful for for people, so that they're they're willing to do it.
0: I've not seen the you know free dash cam. If you give us the ability to you know use the data, is, is who do you have? A, do you know specifically someone who's doing that?
1: There are a couple of companies. I can find the, the names for for you later, a little bit later. Okay. There's one one company called Nexar that has a dash okay. cam app. There's another company that's doing it specifically around ride sharing. So that's an inside outside camera. Right, so the idea okay. being, you're going to have you know you're going to see your customers in the back in case there's any situation where you have an abusive customer or an accident. You need mm-hmm. to have that liability coverage, as well yeah. as you've got your you know your front camera for for accidents and that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. In formulating that question, I hadn't even really thought about all of the dash cams and the various cameras that are mounted on public safety vehicles and utility fleets and things like that. There's just a ton of image data out there.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, if you think about companies that have been working on mapping for a long time, like you mentioned the Google Street View and the Google Maps, cameras. But even right. beyond that, you know, any any fleet or any you know, all of us who can carry uh, smartphones in our in our pockets that have some apps running in the background with location awareness, you know, that's all valid data as far as understanding kind of movement patterns. Mm-hmm. And that you know that alone might not be enough, but that in tandem with, with the camera becomes hugely valuable, or that in tandem with, with uh, high- F maps can tell mm-hmm. you when there's patterns that are changing.
0: Is anyone doing anything as far as integrating in visual data collected via drones in the space?
1: You know, I think that's a whole separate field, as far as on the mapping side, for sure, on the actual vehicle driving systems, uh, not that I know of
0: and is that because you really need to kind of be you know the for the visual data to be to have the unique perspective of the vehicle to be useful or because you know it just hasn't happened yet
1: i think it's probably a little of both so certainly companies think that one of their unique advantages is not just the the footage they're collecting but the way they're collecting it whether it's using multiple sensors in a certain way in certain positions so, you know, where do, where do they locate their cameras? Are they using a stereo camera? Are they using, you know, side cameras as well? Wide field of view camera mm-hmm. in in tandem. So I think there is value to that, you know, u- uniqueness. But also, you know, I think I think we're just going to figure out what the right combination of data is. Obviously, you know, the, the more we can get, the better. And for certain things like figuring out, you know, a, lo- a big picture view of your current area, it would be great if you had something flying above you the whole time that could see, you know, a wider, a further distance, in a wider range than your your eyes or your front cameras might see.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. What questions should I be asking that I might not have asked yet? Are there other thing areas that we might want to dig into before we start to wrap things up?
1: Well, you know, I think we've covered a lot of a lot of good topics. I think when we talk about how people approach this problem, so it might be interesting. Before, you know, before my DAI, when you talk about other crowdsourcing or you talk about like doing it yourself, one of the biggest challenges is about the quality control, like I said, the instructions and all of that. But even when you're trying to do it in house with your own team who knows all the requirements and all the instructions, it's really about that scale and diversity. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, really iterating that or kind of thinking about the fact that this data in Seattle is different from the data in Detroit, which is different than the data in Stuttgart or Singapore or any of these parts of the world. I think that's pretty key. So, I mean, like you, like you asked earlier about how to distribute, you know, how to get collect more data. It's not just Mm -hmm. like drive the same car on the same route over and over and over and over again. Like you do need to do that for a little bit, but really it's about the diversity and then the understanding because, you know, your labelers, in the U S might not even recognize. What does it mean when I see a zigzag line on the road, on the side of the road in Europe, where right, you know, we might go, right. Oh, that's a no parking zone or that's, you know, <laughs> that's a merge area, right? Like there's, right. so there's so much like context and so much localization that I think is easy to overlook. Even if you're somebody who's traveled and you know that you need to go learn the rules of the road somewhere else. It's like mm-hmm. a lot of things that a human can adapt to that. If you're thinking about a system that really is just looking at what it sees and not having that higher level understanding. It's a really hard problem, right? Like, I've never seen the zigzag road. Does that mean I have to, like, you know, slalom my way down the, down the road, right, as, mm-hmm. as a as a car, or does it just mean like stay away from that line, right? <laughs> uh, you know, and that you Let know, the car I, figure yeah, out. I wouldn't be surprised to see some <laughs> autonomous vehicle see one of those markings and just go go crazy as far as uh, you know what it's supposed to do.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. There's so much of this problem space that is you know, the benefits from, from having the intelligence and the human or, or the computer intelligence and the human intelligence kind of melded together, right? So it's not just this training data labeling problem that we've talked about, and you've made a, a very strong case for the power of combining human insight with automated, you know, automated tools but even within the vehicle itself, there's a, there are folks doing research on, you know, how the car can benefit from the input of just looking at the driver and, you know, understanding what their, you know, state is, what they're looking at, things like that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think ultimately when we get, when we get to a point where we have full autonomy, we're going to be in a safer world, right? Where we don't have distraction, or distraction doesn't matter. You know, it's okay to sit there and stare at your mm-hmm. phone if you're not the one driving and you don't need to be the one who's ready to grab the wheel. So we're talking right, about right. early stages where you need to be atten- attentive and have your hands on the wheel or close to it. But as we get further down the road, you know, you take the best of, of the humans, which is the judgment and the vision and the decision making processes, and you take away, you know, the fatigue and the distraction and the things that, you know, are going on in our lives that make it hard for us to, to stay focused. And I think you're going to end up in a better place.
0: Awesome. Well, that is the hope. And, you know, the the vision behind autonomous vehicles For is, you know, as much as people talk about, you know, for example, the the economic issues associated with deploying a bunch of autonomous vehicles in terms of labor and things like that, the, you know, the promise to stave off, you know, the... You know, huge numbers of vehicular related deaths, you know, that occur around the world. That's just huge. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I really appreciate, you know, getting a chance to catch up with, with Mighty AI and hear about what you're doing in this space.
1: Great. Thank you, Sam. Have a great day.
0: Thanks, Darren. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening, and of course for your ongoing feedback and support. For more information on Darren or any of the other topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimalai.com/talk/57. To keep track of this autonomous vehicle series, visit twimalai.com/av2017. Please, please, please remember to send us any comments or questions you may have for us or our guests via Twitter at TwimalAI or at Sam Charrington or leave a comment on the show notes page. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.